On this episode of the Garden of Eden podcast, shit gets violent. That's right, we're diving into Ahimsa, our yoga philosophy topic of the week. Sure, it doesn't really get violent, but we give you an overview of how violence can be much more than the physical. If you live in Southern California, Eden is hosting a yoga workshop at Everybody LA on June 23rd at 1 p.m. So head over to our Instagram to snag a spot. They're very limited. If you want to flow with Jessica, she teaches at Curvy Love Fit Hub every Monday and Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 a.m. If you love the Garden of Eden podcast and you want to see us grow, share us with a friend, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and hit us up with a review. Five stars are so appreciated. But without further ado, let's jump into the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Garden of Eden podcast. My name is Eden. And I'm Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, everybody. We missed you. It's been a long two weeks. Well, (laughs) Jess, how was your week? My week was good. I was just, uh, as I was just telling you offline, um, just really busy. Uh, We opened up the Curvy Love Fit Hub as a fitness center I'm working at. So we had the grand opening Saturday and we've been promoting it all week. So busy, busy, busy. How about you? What have you been up to? Um, just getting prepared to, I'm going to be doing the same type of thing, a lot of teaching soon, and then I am going to LA in a few weeks, so I've been trying to get all of my shiz together for that, uh-huh. um, and I have a workshop coming up June 23rd at Everybody LA. Um, it's $20, and um, no one turned away for lack of funds, of course, and yeah, I'm just really excited for that and signing my new lease so many things going on, but I'm glad to be here to talk to you. I'm glad you're here too. (laughs) So Jessica and I are going to be talking about a million different things on this podcast, but we thought since we're both yoga teachers, we would jump into the eight limbs of yoga and we'd start with the yamas and niyamas, which to me, and Jessica will tell you if she agrees with this or if her teaching was different. To me, they're like the code of ethics for yoga um, from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I like to call them the Ten Commandments of Yoga because (laughs) there are five yamas and five niyamas. So there are ten um, commandments. And yamas are basically the external ethics of yoga. And then niyamas are the internal ethics. Would you agree with that, Jess? Or do you have like a different interpretation or understanding? Um, Yeah. So so it's funny that you said that. (laughs) You said that because uh, one of my papers I have had to do um, in my yoga teacher training program, we had to write some kind, I don't remember what it was, but we had to write about, you know, the eight limbs of yoga. And I titled mine like the eight commandments of yoga (laughs) or something. And I was drawing comparisons. (laughs) So that's interesting that you said that because I have never mentioned that to you. So I would agree. Um, Yeah. And so I think the yamas and niyamas, people kind of explain them differently. And I had a hard time grasping that, but um, I think the way that it made it click for me were like the the yamas were the uh, the things that you don't do, <laughs> uh, the things that you're supposed to, uh, I guess, give up or let go of or not do, and then the niyamas were like the observances or things that you were supposed to kind of acknowledge. So the things you don't do and the things you do do. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah, and in my yoga teacher, doo doo, Jessica said doo doo. I know, that's why I'm giggling. 
um, I'm 12. In my yoga teacher training book for yamas, it has in parentheses universal moral commandments, and then niyamas, it's self purification by discipline, is how they explained it to us. Yeah, I guess disciplines or observances. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard all of that. And it all makes sense to me. So I would agree. Yeah. We are going to talk about the first yama today, which is ahimsa, which I'm sure will be interesting because I'm sure we have a lot of thoughts on it. And it's explained so many different ways in so many different places. Um, It'll be interesting to see what our different thoughts on ahimsa are. Yeah, definitely. I guess I'll let you take it away, Jessica. What is ahimsa to you? Yeah, so I think um, at the very basic uh, exclamation of um, ahimsa is nonviolence, right? Like the general understanding of um, non-harm, nonviolence. Um, first to yourself, uh, well, I guess not first to yourself, first to others, um, then to, you know, the earth, the environment, um, and then lastly to yourself. So it's just something to consider or observe um, regarding not causing harm or violence. Um, So I guess that's the basic, basic element, and that just seems so simple, right? But I think, at least to me, it encompasses so many other things, Um, Mostly, I guess, when I think of ahimsa and applying it to my my own life, I think of um, (laughs) self-sabotage. So, yeah, I I think that, um, like, self-sabotage and, um, oh, gosh, a really, really big one is non-judgment. I feel like that's not explicit in the eight limbs of yoga or in the yamas or niyamas, and I feel like it fits in with ahimsa. I don't know if you agree. I would agree, and... I agree with your definition of ahimsa, nonviolence or compassion. Um, A lot of people explain it as compassion as well. And like Jessica said, beyond like physical violence, it's like um, negative self-talk to me is a way to practice ahimsa, like being mindful of your negative self-talk. Like Jessica said, judgment, the way that you... um, treat others and I guess like at a basic level it's like I think it was described in my yoga teacher training was like the practice of nonviolence, and it's the removal of like our animal nature of harming others in any way so that can be physically mentally yeah but then on the same I guess on the same like violence is inherently part of the universe like there are t- <laughs> there are times when it's necessary, right? Not that like obviously I don't condone um, just g- general violence violence for the sense of being violent or to express anger or any of those reasons. But there are times when you like like that's the only way to get through. So it's always something I think about. It's always something I kind of go back and forth on, and I'm always questioning personally, really. Um, yeah, you know, and and we can talk about like. Um, just like general domestic violence or just violence out there in the street or, um, you know, your diet, like what you choose to eat. You know what I mean? Like, um, it's just something I go back and forth on and struggle and I'm not always super, super clear. I mean, I I guess that the bigger picture, I understand it. Um, but there's just so many, there's so many aspects in life where violence is 
all around us and it's not always in the traditional sense. Yeah. And I want to talk about food separately in a second, but I feel like my yoga teacher training, I'm going to get very real here, was quite whitewashed. So um, I have, you know, people saying things like, even giving unkind looks to people is himza, which himza is violence, ahimza is nonviolence. So I have a lot of white ladies telling me about things like nonviolent communication, like don't use certain types of words because they're violent and certain ways of communicating are violent. And I'm like, well, that's easy for you to say because you've grown up white in this world. Uh, so mm-hmm. when you're black, sometimes you have to be assertive. And if you consider that violent communication, that just means you've had the privilege of not feeling so oppressed that you have to put your foot down. Right. Or yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're not growing up as a white person, if you're growing up in brown, dark skin, um, I mean, as a woman, as a black woman, I know that a big, a big issue I had as a teenager and adolescence before I even knew who I was, was people perceiving me to be angry and violent right off the bat. Anytime I express any kind of sadness or anything other than happiness. So yeah, I think that would definitely definitely be a situation that we can both relate to where um, our natural behavior or way of communication can be seen as violent um, or an act of Himza, as you yeah. say, and <laughs> the, the Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's so funny. You're probably so much more well versed in in Sanskrit than I am because I'm I'm barely good at English. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I I studied it as part of my program, but <laughs> I always feel and I struggle with this. Um, uh, even though I'm half Indian, and I probably should have included that in my intro podcast, so this, I think something that a lot of people don't know about me, um, but that's neither here nor there, but I feel like I'm appropriating this culture like it doesn't belong to me, and it definitely does, so I feel so out of my comfort zone using the Sanskrit terms, but then also the second layer to that is I feel like it's almost bougie. Like, it's over people's heads. I have a lot of beginners that come to my class, and I start, like, spouting out Sanskrit, and they're just looking at me like, "Uh huh? (laughs) I remember the first few times I went to classes like that, and I was just like, the hell is she talking about? I know. (laughs) So, I, yeah. I use Sanskrit very sparingly. (laughs) Like, I don't use it a lot. I'll use it directly after a pose. Sometimes I'll work in the Sanskrit name if I can remember it, because there's, you know, there's so many elements to teaching sometimes I cannot think of like the Sanskrit name on top of like all of my directives <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah like I, I I mix up my I have like body dyslexia so I'm like yes now t- touch your ankles I mean your elbows I mean your shoulders so adding the Sanskrit on top of that is you know a challenge <laughs> uh, on top of everything else I shared my bad habit is saying the palms of your feet <laughs> Instead of the souls of your feet. I just got over that. (laughs) (laughs) That, That's definitely something I've said several times. I know. It's very Mm. funny. And you always get like just a couple of confused faces looking at you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But I think that our trainings did, were you taught in your training to demo classes? Um, to To demo the postures as I'm teaching? 
Uh-huh. Well, my teacher was really, really big on don't take your own class. Yeah. Like, focus your time and energy on your students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, she's, and she was really big on cueing and helping us understand how to explain the postures um, without having to demo them all, like, the basic stuff. But then she's, you know, she said, if you have a bunch of people that are new and you know they don't know what's going on, you're going to demo a posture. Or if it's a really difficult posture or you're demoing a modification or a non-traditional version, demo it briefly um, or go through the sun salutation once or whatever you're doing, whatever your vinyasa flow is, and then keep your eyes on your students. But she was big on um, language and description um, and us being able to understand um, cues without visual cues. Yeah. So I don't... um, you know, it'll be, it's rare if I have a couple people in class and we're close or good friends, I might take part of the class with them just because they know what's going on and it's it's good for the, the vibes, I think, you know, to kind of, especially if it's more difficult. Um, but if I have a big class, like the classes I've been teaching lately have been, you know, 10, 15 people, I'm walking around, I'm using my vocals, I'm pointing to other students that I know have, you know, practice regularly or are used to my class if people are lost just because I feel the hands-on really helps people feel supported. Um, and not even the hands-on, but coming over to people in the back or people that are lost and helping them um, versus standing all the way at the front where they might not even be able to see me. Yeah, that's very similar to my training. They're very big on you can't be in your own practice and make sure that your students are practicing safely. Um, very similar, all about language, all about cues, all about different descriptors for poses. And um, we do kind of this one, two, three rule, like you explain it with your words once. Um, you explain it one more time if people are lost and on the third time you can demo if people just really aren't getting what you're saying. But yeah, I'm the same way. I feel like there are very few classes that I go to where the instructor is demoing, except for some really small studios up in Austin. I, anytime you go to yoga at the gym, they will demo. Your instructor, they will not be able to touch you. They will take the whole class. And you're just kind of on your own. <laughs> That's been my experience, and I've taken lots of yoga at gyms. Um, and then I have experienced some teachers that are just into their. I don't. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just the way they were taught, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always felt more the most supported when the teachers are the instructors there with you. You can hear their voice over you, especially if you're in something that's difficult or you're feeling emotional or you're just exhausted. You know, those 90 minute (laughs) vinyasa flow classes and you feel like you don't have another vinyasa in you or, you know, you don't have another um, uh, (laughs) plank pose in you. And then you hear that gentle voice like right over your head and you feel supported. Like they see you. Mm -hmm. They're there with you. You know what I mean? So, and, and I mean, I guess this plays into the topic of Ahimsa. Like, as an instructor and also as a student, it's important that you're not being violent towards your body in your practice, in your physical asana practice. I know, like, I've hurt myself practicing. <laughs> I've learned that lesson. Um, and I know I've noticed students, like, wanting to almost impress the teacher, the instructor, and, like, overbend or overstretch or overdo something. And you can see their breath getting shallower, face getting red. And that's another reason, I think, to not to be more present while you're instructing and not take your own class. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I remember going to gym, like yoga at the gym and doing like body flow and things like that. And they do practice with you the whole time, but I haven't been to yoga at the gym for a very long time. Now it's like strictly studio based. So, um, but I, 
I like that you brought up like listening to your body and not being violent to your body or pushing it too far because I think it's like human nature to kind of compete, (laughs) especially in classes Mm -hmm. like with the person in front of you trying to do what their body is doing. And it's like paying attention to your own body and listening to your own body and making sure that you don't injure yourself because your body will humble you very quickly if you think that you're going to teach it a lesson. Oh, it will. (laughs) It absolutely will. I have, um, yeah, I injured myself with my asana practice. Um, Just, I was thinking I was hot shit. I don't know what I was thinking, but just doing things too quickly and too fast and you some there's some things that you'll never recover from Mm -hmm. so it's really important to to really be careful with yourself and I would like to think that in my classes people are not competing with each other because I put it really do put a strong emphasis on that or at least I try to especially if you have a lot of new faces in class like this is about you it's not about what you know somebody else is doing next to you. Like, you don't have to worry about looking like them. I want you to feel your body. I want you to feel what I'm cueing. Like, do you feel your chest opening? Do you feel your hip opening? I don't care what you look like. Nobody cares what you look like. I feel like a lot of the time students want to impress the instructor. Like, you know, anytime you're a teacher or instructor or leader in any role, whether it's on the mat or in a classroom or in an office or whatever, uh, the people that are following you, I guess, or, or being lear- learning from you, um, are they want to impress you. Like, you're just in that kind of role of influence, right? And they want to impress you. And I, I want to talk people off of that ledge because I will not be impressed if you turn red in the face and, you know, you hurt yourself or you throw your back out or whatever. Yeah. I get that. Um, how do you think Ahimsa relates to, like, specifically, like, diet culture and body positivity? Oh, wow. So I, I think, obvious. the first thing I think of is is non-judgment, like I mentioned at the beginning. It's not, it just seems so obvious to me, and it's not explicitly called out in the limbs of yoga. I feel like it fits in here perfectly. Um, when you're judging other people and you're sharing it with them or you're keeping it to yourself, there's harm being done. It's it's not a happy space mm-hmm. to be in. You're either projecting your garbage onto somebody else, which does happen a lot. You know, you know the the comment don't the the phrase don't read the comments, never read the comments. Like yeah. <laughs> there's people projecting their garbage out, right? <laughs> um, and if they're not, they're sitting and marinating in that garbage. They're stewing in this just dead energy. Um, So as far as body positivity, I think being as positive as you can, cleaning up, like housekeeping, cleaning up your brain and your thoughts. Um, And it's not as easy as thinking them and letting them go. It's like thinking them and then asking yourself why and dealing with it and coping with it. It's like a a personal therapy session. Um, So I think that's a big one. Um, And you said body, body positivity and... What else? Diet Sorry. culture. And diet culture. Oh, that's, I mean, diets are, diets are harmful. They're violent. <laughs> they're harmful. <laughs> they're, they're violent. <laughs> I mean, it's such a broad term, but in the way we're talking about as far as diet industry, yeah. restricting, restricting calories, trying to change your body, it's, off, it's often um, coming from a place of fear and hate. And that's violent. I mean, that's that's not good. Yeah. It's bad mojo. Um, so anytime you're going to 
trying to change your body because you hate it, it's, first of all, it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, it's harmful. So and, it's, it's not something you should be doing in an extreme yeah, way. Yeah, and I don't think either one of us are talking about healthy lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with focusing on nutrition and feeding yourself the things that make you feel good and that fuel you. But um, it's a whole different thing than restricting or over-exercising or, you know, I used mm-hmm. to work out like five hours a day at the gym and some people are like, that's so impressive. And I'm like, no, that's stupid and it's damaging and my body's falling apart and when you're like working on burning more than you're eating or um doing super super caloric deficits beyond what you should be or you know I don't really like counting what I eat anyhow but all of that is I would consider like violent behavior to your own body because when you're in a deficit like that it does harm your body it harms the way that your body functions 100% so then the weight comes back because it's trying to like compensate and recalibrate from all of the harm that you have done exactly the harm that you've done it's trying to make up for that because you have You've kept something vital from your body, and that's that's violent and in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. In the way we're discussing, and it's broad. So, um, and I, I guess absolutely, and I like the way, um, or I, I can relate to what you said about exercise, uh, over exercising. I know that um, me like adapting fitness or exercise to my lifestyle um, as it is now. Like it's just something I do. I am active, and before in my life, it was always something I associated with dieting. And I was a yo-yo dieter. I was constantly dieting, giving up, dieting, giving up. So it was just like I associated exercising, sweating, burning, <laughs> burning calories or whatever, however I was doing it physically with dieting. And so when I finally deconstructed that and adapted like an, a regular exercise routine, joyful exercise, I almost got to a point where I was, I, I don't want to say addicted because that's not a, a mild term to throw around, but... I started to see myself go in that direction. Like I was really into those endorphins that you feel. Oh yeah. And I was doing like two. Yeah, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I was doing like it was like the first time I discovered them and I'm like in my late 20s, right? Um I'm doing two, three classes at the gym in a row to get that like to keep that going and I was just after a few months I um was like, "Wow, I'm in a lot of pain." Like this recovery time mm-hmm. is taking away from my life like I don't know that this is helping me I think this is hurting me more than it's helping me and I got to that point where I'm like okay I can see I can see how this is going I can see the direction this is going in and I can see that this is actually hurting me more than it's helping me and I just started to kind of ease off and like recalibrate my own expectations and what I was looking to get out of this. So definitely can relate yeah. to that. Uh, it's hard though. And like when I was working out like five hours a day and there are still the days like here in Austin where I'll be like, oh, I'm going to a yoga class and then I'm going to go to a diva dance class later or I'll hit the yoga studio once in the morning and then some of my friends are going later. So I'll go again. But it's so real. And like you said, I tread lightly on the addicted word, but it is very enticing to feel that feel good at the end of an exercise and like want to keep that going. And I don't think people talk about that enough. They don't. I think that it takes a If you're somebody who has been inactive for most of your life and you just get into exercise, it's going to take you a long time to get to that point. You have to build up, I think, a, a general 
baseline of fitness until you get to a point where you get those adrenalines, that adrenaline rush, um, and don't just feel like you want to die. Because I think it took like a good six months to a year before I built up that um, stability to where I felt like really great after working out and not like I just wanted to fall over and couldn't get up, you know? Yeah, we're both active little bugs. So <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about is food in Ahimsa. And I know kind of studios are split on this. Like there's a couple of studios that different instructors I know teach at that like don't allow meat into their studios and then other ones that do. And although I'm vegan, I have very complex thoughts on this. Do you think Ahimsa extends to our diets and food? <sighs> yes, um, I think it absolutely can. Um, and at the same time, life is complex. Mm-hmm. Um, the, way, the way we eat is such a personal, a, such, a, such a personal decision. There's so many different things that are out of control that go into our diets, um, like socioeconomic uh, background, where you live, your religion, um, just so much, right? Yeah. Like I grew up in a partial, partial food desert. So like, this is really something that is close to me and it kind of goes right back up there with non-judgment. Like, I, I think that the eight limbs of yoga, the yamas, the niyamas are baselines or guidelines, their ideas, their, um, uh, it's not an end-all, be-all for me, you know. Um, I think that life is really complex, and they're just kind of guidelines or things to consider to to line your life with. But it's not like a, this is wrong and this is right. So I definitely think that you know nonviolence comes into play, ahimsa comes into play in diet, you know, as much as it possibly can. Um, I think that there's a lot of different reasons people eat the way they do, and I don't feel like it makes any sense to waste time judging that. Um, but at the same time, I think if you have the means, um, the financial stability, you have the ability to eat well, I think you should consider uh, the sources of where your food is coming from, um, how long it's taking to get there, you know, who's picking it, who's processing it, um, you know, ethical ways in which the, the, what you're eating is processed. So if you're eating, if you choose to eat animals for whatever reason, like, can you do it in the most uh, compassionate way possible, you know? I know, like, my diet has flopped around a lot. And now that I'm in a place in my life where I'm not necessarily, like, broke, I can spend a little bit of extra money on my diet. I am mindful of um, the produce that I buy and, you know, the animal products that I consume. I try to make sure, you know, within my means that they're they're good, you know. They're coming from stable places and, you know, there's not child labor. Um, They're coming from, from good, healthy places both for myself and for the environment. Yeah. And I can agree with that. And I even take it kind of a little bit further. Although I'm vegan, it's not for Ahimsa. Um, I think Ahimsa, like Jessica said, or life is much more complex than that. And no two people are created the same. I'm vegan for religion, but although I don't think it's necessary for religion. So the two people that trained me, they were both vegan at one point and they've both worked in different studios where it's required like only plant-based foods here. And even the yoga books that we read through like Light on Yoga, it talks a lot about having a vegetarian diet and how it's a necessity. 
but hearing a lot of the stories of people that aren't able to stay vegan, like with veganism, 80% of people that go vegan end up not staying vegan. Um, it could be violent to force yourself to continue on a vegan diet if you aren't feeling well. And Mm -hmm. like some people just have smaller stomachs. They can't eat the volume that they need um, to get in all of the nutrients that they need. And a small piece of animal protein along with with a salad is more sustainable for them. So in essence to me, it could be violent to continue on a diet that you don't feel optimal at because we'll talk about it more, but like um, we'll talk about it more. But the basis of yoga is really to be in service of the divine and others. And you can't be in service of the divine if you feel like shit. 100%. Absolutely. Um, I have met um, and I guess liaised with other people in uh, the yoga community that do feel strongly about vegetarian vegan diets. Um, And I have to be honest, it turns me off because it just... There's so much that's not considered. Like you said, it's harmful to stay, um, to eat in a certain way or to treat your body in a certain way that is ultimately harmful. Um, If you know that, you know, if you're not functioning well without like some kind of a high quality animal protein and you've tried and you're just, it's not working out for you, then, you know, do what you need to do so that your body can be healthy. Um, I I think more, more importantly than what you're choosing to eat um, when it comes to nonviolence or hemza, uh, it's important to understand how your food is coming to be. Does that exactly. make sense? Um, yeah. And like, I don't know if I finished my thought about the two ladies that taught me yoga teacher training. They were vegan and then hardcore vegan for years and years. And then they decided that working animal products back into their life was best for them. And uh, I know vegans go off about this, but who are we really to say what's best for someone else? And if we are saying what's best for someone else, that's violent. 100%. Going back to what I said about projecting your garbage onto other people, we're all on a different journey. You know, if you feel strong and passionate about something, you can't expect everybody else to as well. <laughs> you have to really mind your... You got to learn how to mind your beeswax when it when it really counts. It's not... It's not you're not it's not your battle battle to fight. Yeah. Um somebody else's diet is not your battle to fight. It's not really your concern. Um Yeah, that's that's how I feel about that. And I think some people that follow me would be really turned off by me saying that since I am vegan, but I also I'm able of thinking critically and um I know that not what works for my body isn't going to work for everyone else's body. I do want to touch on just quickly. I remember the first time I ever heard of Ahimsa, it was from Russell Simmons. And he was talking about how a yoga teacher that he had taken a class from told him not to eat eggs because that that chicken was stressed and, you know, you know, so on and so forth in the environment that it was raised. And then that stress absorbs into your your body, that kind of thing. So I do sometimes think about that with food, but that could also be with vegetables as well. If you're getting vegetables that are conventionally grown, that have been shipped halfway across the world by slave labor, that same energy from those people that are paid basically nothing, (laughs) not a living wage, working in extreme heat, um, the trade environment isn't fair with the countries and so on and so forth. That same 
feeling is going into those vegetables Mm -hmm. that you're eating. So if you're not purchasing locally and organic and all of these other factors that can go into food, I think, like we've been saying this whole time, it's all so much more complex than just eating vegan or not. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, And outside of food, you can think of the same exact you can apply the same exact thing to the things you buy and the clothing, like the quick fashion thing. Yeah. Where, you know, you have people overseas, children overseas, sewing clothing together, barely getting paid to kind of, you know, turn our economy around. And, and these clothes that we see online that are so accessible, like from overseas uh, manufacturers and things like that, that's all things, those are things we're consuming as well. We're not, you know, internalizing them, but... Certainly, those are things that we're consuming in one way or another, and I think that that same idea, um, I think that that same idea applies. And there's only so much that we have control over. So I think that more than anything, outside of the scope of you know, like eating in a, in a non-violent way or being mindful of your diet in regards to um, the yamas, <laughs> um, it's important that the intention. Is there? Um, I know that I went to a yoga bhakti a bhakti yoga type retreat several years ago, and I remember that like having intention over the food that we consume. So like before we ate, it was just like kind of like a, a traditional like grace, like that you would think of in any tr- Christian household. You know, saying grace over your food mm-hmm. before you eat it, being thankful. It was the same thing, but it was more of like we would chant or say a very, very specific prayer where we're just, you know, being thankful to the earth and the environment, how the food got to us and putting that mindfulness into like so much was put into this meal, not just the fact that we cooked it, but everything went on, came from some journey to get to your plate, like to get to this kitchen. Um, So I think that that's helpful too. Like there's only so much we can control. Mm -hmm. Um, And the most important thing is to be mindful of all of that and, and to be aware of it and be present as you're consuming these things that probably, you know, some violence came into play in order for it to get onto your plate, but acknowledge it and be mindful. And I think that that's kind of a a nice way to regard that Yeah, I'm glad that that you brought that up. I feel like I had it at top of mind for a second, talking about prayer and praying over your food and being thankful for the things that go into your body and how they nourish you and things like that. So I'm glad that you you said that because I was thinking it, but I... You know, mm-hmm. I probably went on some tangent. I got you, girl. I went girl. on some tangent and completely <laughs> forgot. <laughs> well, well, I think we thought that this was going to be an easy topic to tackle, and then it just started going all over the place because it's really big and it touches a lot of stuff. Yeah, it does. Um, any closing thoughts? I think we've covered most of it, but <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. No. Well, I'm good. Well, that's a himza, and we'll go back and forth between a yama and a niyama, and we'll have um, more mm-hmm. like fun or conversational episodes in between. But we did want to hit on some like yoga philosophy along the way. So we want to thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Don't scurry out of the garden. If you want more Jessica and Eden, head over to Instagram. Follow Jessica at Jessica Jade Yoga and follow Eden at Eden Jacks. That's E-D-Y-N. Yeah, we know. Her mom is extra. Do you have a question about yoga or body positivity? Shoot it over to hello at gardenofeden.co. We can't wait to hear from you. Bye.